This is the Man of God podcast, an outreach of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. You're listening to the voice of the narrated Puritan, a ministry on SermonAudio.com. Our new website is PuritanAudiobooks.com. Allow me to do a little introduction to why at this time I am narrating The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded by John Owen. First of all, it's for my personal edification and conviction, but I was thinking about over all of the years of the things that I have seen people involved in as professing Christians that in and of themselves are good ministries, they're commendable, but that you could do all of these and really have no spiritual mindedness toward the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was living in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I knew a good man who became a very dear friend who sold used books out of his basement. There wasn't anything like it in all of Grand Rapids. He had all of the old banner of truth titles. He had syllabuses that were for the classes that Cornelius Van Til taught. He had so many things with unequaled prices and used books in all of Grand Rapids. But I always marveled when I talked to him that the man himself never seemed to have any real evangelical conversation. Ultimately, I couldn't judge that man. I'm just saying that this is an example of what could happen. I love to teach church history. I love to study church history. But I know that I could do that, and I have done that, when I forget that the object of church history is it is the history of our Lord Jesus Christ and the building of his church. I have a great deal of respect for our young people who are engaging people down at the park in downtown Orangeboro near the Ohio River. But I know you can pass out tracts and be a great apologetic specialist and only be moved by a sense of duty. I'm a professing Christian. I should be doing this and have no real heart affection for the people you're trying to reach with the gospel. I know this because I did it myself. I used to live in New York City, and a friend of mine from Trinity Baptist Church and I went into Manhattan, and we were passing out Bible tracts. That's a cold atmosphere anyway, because when I would go into Manhattan, you kind of are protecting yourself. You can't be in a city like that and not somewhat be on your guard. But I realized as I was passing out tracks to the people passing by, I did it out of a sense of duty. And I felt like, do I really have compassion on the souls of the people that I'm handing these tracks to? Truth be known, I felt nothing towards them. And since this podcast is a ministry to people who are aspiring to the ministry or are students at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you have a great deal of theological training that is expected of you. But you can master the doctrine of man. You could be a great apologist. You could be a great Christian philosopher. You could be a great polemicist. You could take down anybody that holds to post-millennialism and show them the stake of his eschatological views. You can master the best arguments to defend credo-baptism against our paedo-baptist brethren, and in all of this not have a real strong affection for our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this could come out of a bad motive. Well, that's my confession far too often. And John Owen goes right to the root of that in his work, The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded. But before I begin with that reading, 
Let me read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of man and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And with that, we'll listen to this chapter narrated. And I would say I've put it in as modern English as I can as I went along. From the Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded, Chapter 7 of John Owen. Chapter 7 of the Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded. Special Objects of Spiritual Thoughts of Christ Himself, first of all. It will be to our advantage. Having stated right notions of the glory of the blessed state above in our minds, to fix on some particulars belonging to it, as the special objects of our thoughts and meditations as first. Think much of Christ, who to us is the life and center of all the glory of heaven. I shall be very brief in treating of this, because I have designed a peculiar treatise on the subject of beholding the glory of Christ both here and to eternity. At present, therefore, a few things only shall be mentioned, because on this occasion they are not to be omitted. The whole of the glory of the state above is expressed by being ever with the Lord, where he is, to behold his glory. For in and through him is a beatifical manifestation of God and his glory made forevermore. And through him are all communications of inward glory to us. The attraction of heavenly glory consists in Christ's mediatorial ministry. As I have at large elsewhere declared, and who will be the means of all glorious communications between God and the church to eternity. Therefore, if we are spiritually minded, we should fix our thoughts on Christ above, as the center of all heavenly glory. To help us in this, we may consider the things that follow. First, faith has continual recourse to him on the account of what he did and suffered for us in this world. For on this pardon of sin, justification, and peace with God depend. This arises in the first place from a sense of our own wants. But love of him is no less necessary to us than faith in him. And although we have powerful motives to love from what he did and was in this world, yet the formal reason of our adherence to him by this is what he is in himself, as he is now exalted in heaven. If we do not rejoice at the remembrance of his present glory, if the thoughts of it are not frequent with us and refreshing to us, how dwells his love in us? Number two, our hope is that before long we shall ever be with him. And if so, it is certainly our wisdom and duty to be here with him as much as we can. It is a vain thing for any to suppose that they place their chiefest happiness in being forever in the presence of Christ, who don't care at all to be with him here and now, as they may. And the only way of our being present with him here is by faith and love acting themselves in spiritual thoughts and affections. And it is an absurd thing for men to esteem themselves Christians who scare think of Christ all the day long. 
Yet some, as one complained of old, scarce as ever to speak or think of him, but when they swear by his name. I have read of them who have lived and died in continual contemplation on him, so far as the imperfection of our present state will admit. I have known them, I do know them, who call themselves to a reproof, if at any time he has been minutes out of their thoughts. And it is strange that it should be otherwise with them who love him in sincerity. Yet I wish I did not know more who give evidences that it is a rare thing for them to be exercised in serious thoughts and meditations about him. Yea, there are some who are not averse upon occasions to speak of God, of mercy, of pardon, of his power and goodness, who, if you mention Christ to them with anything of faith, love, trust in him, they seem to them as a strange thing. Few there are who are sensible of any religion beyond what is natural. The things of the wisdom and power of God and Christ are foolishness to them. Take some directions for the discharging of this duty. In your thoughts of Christ, be very careful that they are conceived and directed according to the rule of the word, lest you deceive your own souls and give up the conduct of your affections to vain imaginations. Spiritual notions befallen carnal minds did once, by the means of superstition, ruin the power of religion. A conviction men had that they must think much of Jesus Christ and that this would make them conformable to him, but having no real evangelical faith, nor the wisdom of faith to exercise it in their thoughts and affections in a due manner, nor understanding what it was to be truly like to him, they gave up themselves to many foolish inventions and imaginations by which they thought to express their love and conformity to him. They would have images of him, which they would embrace, adore, and bedew with their tears. They would have crucifixes, as they called them, which they would carry about them, and wear next to their hearts, as if they resolved to lodge Christ always in their bosoms. They would go in pilgrimage to the place where he died and rose again, through a thousand dangers, and purchase a feigned chip of a tree in which he suffered, at the price of all they had in the world. They would endeavor by long thoughtfulness, lastings, and watchings to cast their souls into raptures and ecstasies in which they fancied themselves in his presence. They came at last to make themselves like him in getting impressions of wounds on their sides, their hands, and their feet. Unto all these things and a number of others of a like nature and tendency did superstition abuse and corrupt the minds of men from a pretense of a principle of truth. For there is no more certain gospel truth than this, that believers ought continually to contemplate on Christ by the actings of faith in their thoughts and affections, and that by this they are changed and transformed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 And we are not to forgo our duty because other men have been mistaken in theirs, nor part with practical, fundamental principles of religion because they have been abused by others' superstition. But we may see in this how dangerous it is to depart in anything from the conduct of Scripture, light, and rule, when for lack of this, the best and most noble endeavors of the minds of men, even to love Christ and to be like to him, issue in provocations of him of the highest nature. Pray, therefore, that you may be kept to the truth in all things by a diligent attendance to the only rule of this, 
and conscientious subjection of soul to the authority of God in it. For we ought not to allow our affections to be entangled with the paint or artificial beauty of any way or means of giving our love to Christ, which are not warranted by the word of truth. Yet I must say that I'd rather be among them who in the actings of their love and affection to Christ fall into some irregularities and excesses in a manner of expressing it, provided their worship of him be neither superstitious nor idolatrous, then among those who profess in themselves to be Christians, do almost disavow their having any thoughts of or affection to the person of Christ. But there is no need that we should foolishly run into either of these extremes. God has in the scripture sufficiently provided against them both. He has both showed us the necessity of our diligent acting of faith and love on the person of Christ, and is limited out of the way and means in which we may so do. And let our designs be what they will, where in anything we depart from his prescriptions. We are not under the conduct of his spirit, and so are sure to lose all that we do. Therefore, two things are required that we may thus think of Christ and meditate on him according to the mind and will of God. Number one that the means of bringing him to the mind may be what God has promised and appointed. Number two, that the continued proposal of him as the object of our thoughts and meditations will be of the same kind. For both these ends, the superstitious minds of men invented the ways of images and crucifixes, and this rendered all their devotion an abomination. That which tends to these ends among believers is the promise of the Spirit and the institutions of the Word. Would you then think of Christ as he ought? Take these two directions. One, pray that the Holy Spirit may abide with you continually to mind you of him, which he will do in all in whom he abides, for it belongs to his office. Number two, for more fixed thoughts and meditations. Take some important place of scriptures in which he has set forth and proposed, either in his person, office, or grace to you. Galatians 3, verse 1. This duty lies at the foundation of all that blessed communion and intercourse that is between Jesus Christ and the souls of believers. This, I confess, is despised by some, and the very notion of it is esteemed ridiculous, but they do in this no less than renounce Christianity and turn the Lord Christ into an idol that neither knows, sees, nor hears. But I speak to them who are not utter strangers to the life of faith, who know not what religion is unless they have real spiritual intercourse and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ by it. Consider this, therefore as it is in particular exemplified in the Song of Solomon. There is not one example of it to be found which does not suppose a continued thoughtfulness of him. And in answer to them, as they are actings of faith and love in which he is delighted, does he by his spirit insinuate into our minds and hearts a gracious sense of his own love, kindness, and relation to us. The great variety in which these things are mutually carried on between him and the church the singular endearments which ensue as a result, and blessed state in rest and complacency make up the substance of that holy discourse. 
No thoughts of Christ and proceeding from faith accompanied with love and delight shall be lost. They that sow the seed shall return with their sheaves. Christ will meet them with gracious intimations of his acceptance of them and delight in them and in return a sense of his own love to them. He never will be. He never was behind with any poor soul in returns of love. Those gracious and blessed promises which he has made of coming to them, that believe in him, of making his abode with them, and of supping with them, all expressions of a gracious presence and intimate communion, all depend on this duty. Therefore, we may consider three things concerning the thoughts of Christ. Number one, that they are exceedingly acceptable to him. As the best pledges of our cordial affection, Song of Solomon 2, 14. O my dove, you are as the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the stairs. Let me see your countenance, let me hear your voice. For sweet is your voice and your countenance is comely. When a soul, through manifold discouragements and despondencies, withdraws, and as it were hides itself from him, he calls to see a poor, weeping, blubbered face, and to hear a broken voice that scarce goes beyond sighs and groans. The thoughts are the only means in which we comply with the gracious invitations of his love mentioned before. By them do we hear his knocking, know his voice, and open the door of our hearts to give him entrance, that he may abide and sup with us. Sometimes, indeed, the soul is surprised into acts of gracious communion with Christ, but they are not to be expected unless we abide in those ways and means which prepare and make our souls fit for the reception and entertainment of him. Therefore, number three, our lack of experience in the power of this holy intercourse and communion with Christ arises principally from our defects in this duty. I have known one who, after a long profession of faith and holiness, fell into great darkness and distress merely on this account, that he did not experience in himself the sweetness, life, and power of the testimonies given concerning the real communications of the love of Christ, too, and the animation of his presence with believers. He knew well enough the doctrine of it, but he never felt the power of it. At least he understood there was more in it than he had experience of. God carried him by faith through that darkness, but taught him with it that no sense of these things was to be led into the soul, but by constant thoughtfulness and contemplations on Christ. How many blessed visits do we lose, but not be an exercise to this duty? Sometimes we are busy, sometimes careless and negligent, sometimes slothful, sometimes under the power of temptation, so that we neither inquire after nor are ready to receive them, this is not the way to have our joys abound. Number four, again, I speak now with special respect to him in heaven. The glory of his presence as God and man eternally united. The discharge of his mediatorial office as he is at the right hand of God. The glory of his presence acting for the church as he is a minister of the sanctuary and a true tabernacle which God has fixed and not man the love, power, and efficacy of his intercession in which he takes care for the accomplishment of the salvation of the church, 
the approach of his glorious coming to judgment are to be the objects of our daily thoughts and meditations. Let us not mistake ourselves. To be spiritually minded is not to have the notion and knowledge of spiritual things in our minds. It is not to be constant, no, nor to abound in a performance of duties, both which may be where there is no grace in the heart at all. It is to have our minds really exercised with delight about heavenly things. The things that are above, especially Christ himself, is at the right hand of God. Number five again, so think of eternal things as continually to lay them in the balance against all the sufferings of this life. This use of it I have spoken to somewhat before, and it is necessary it should be pressed upon all occasions. It is very probable that we shall yet suffer more than we have done. Those who have gone before us have done so. It is foretold in the scripture that if we will live godly in Christ Jesus, we must do so. We stand in need of it, and the world is prepared to bring it on us. And as we must suffer, so it is necessary to the glory of God and our own salvation that we suffer in a due manner. Mere sufferings will neither commend us to God nor any way advantage our own souls. When we suffer according to the will of God, it is an eminent grace, gift, and privilege. Philippians 1 verse 29. But many things are required here unto. It is not enough that men suppose themselves to suffer for conscience sake, though if we do not so suffer, all our sufferings are in vain. Nor is it enough that we suffer for this or that way of profession and religion, which we esteem to be true and according to the mind of God, in opposition to what it is not so. The glory of sufferings on these accounts solely has been much solid in the days in which we live. It is evident that persons, out of a natural courage, accompanied with deep, radicate persuasions, and having their minds influenced with some sinister ends, may undergo things hard and difficult in giving testimony to what is not according to the mind of God. Examples we have had of this in all ages, and in that in which we live in a special manner. 1 Peter 4, verses 14 to 16. We have had enough to take off all paint and appearance of honor from them who in their sufferings are deceived and what they profess. But men may from the same principle suffer for what is indeed according to the mind of God. Yea, may give their bodies to be burned therein, and yet not to his glory or their own eternal advantage. Therefore, we are duly to consider all things that are requisite to make our sufferings acceptable to God and honorable to the gospel. I have observed in many a frame of spirit with respect to sufferings that I never saw good event of when it was tried to the uttermost. Boldness, confidence, a pretended contempt of hardships and scorning other men whom they supposed effective in these things are the garments or livery they wear on this occasion. Such principles may carry men out in a bad cause. They will never do so in a good one. Evangelical truth will not be honorably witnessed to, but by evangelical grace. Distrust of ourselves, a due apprehension of the nature of the evils to be undergone and of our own frailty, 
with continual prayers to be delivered from them or supported under them, and prudent care to avoid them without an inroad on conscience or neglect of duty are much better preparations for an entrance into a state of suffering. Many things belong to our learning correctly. This first and last lesson of the gospel, namely of bearing the cross, undergoing all sorts of sufferings for the profession of it, but they belong not to our present occasion. This only is that which we now press as an evidence of our sincerity in our sufferings and an effectual means to enable us cheerfully to undergo them, which is to have such a continual prospect of the future state of glory as delayed in the balance against all that we may undergo. For one, to have our minds filled and possessed with thoughts of this will give us an alacrity in our entrance into sufferings and a way of duty. Other considerations will offer themselves to our relief, which will quickly fade and disappear. They are like a cordial water, which gives a little relief for a season and then leaves the spirits to sink beneath what they were before it was taken. Some relieve themselves from the consideration of the nature of their sufferings. They are not so great, but that they may conflict with them and come off with safety. But there is nothing of that kind so small as will not prove too hard and strong for us unless we have special assistance. Some do the same from their duration. They are but for ten days or six months, and then they shall be free. Some from the compassion and esteem of men. These and the like considerations are apt to occur to the minds of all sorts of persons, whether they are spiritually minded or not. But when our minds are accustomed to thoughts of the glory that shall be revealed, we shall cheerfully entertain every way and path that leads to this. The suffering for the truth does in a peculiar manner. Through this medium, we may look cheerfully and comfortably on the loss of name, reputations, goods, liberty, and life itself, as knowing in ourselves that we have better and more abiding comforts to betake ourselves to. And we can no other way glorify God but by our alacrity and the entrance of sufferings than when it arises from a prospect into and value of those invisible things which he has promised as an abundant recompense for all we can lose in this world. Number two, the great aggravation of sufferings is their long continuance without any rational appearance or hope of relief. Many who have entered into sufferings with much courage and resolution have been wearied and worn out with their continuance. Elijah himself was by this reduced to pray that God would take away his life to put an end to his ministry and calamities. And not a few in all ages have been by this so broken in their natural spirits and so shaken in the exercise of faith as that they have lost the glory of their confession and seeking deliverance by sinful compliances and the denial of truth. And although this may be done out of mere weariness, as it is the design of Satan to wear out the saints of the Most High, with reluctance of mind and a love yet remaining to the truth in their hearts, yet has it constantly one of these two effects, some by the overwhelming sorrow that befalls them on the account of their failure in profession, and out of a deep sense of their unkindness to the Lord Jesus are stirred up immediately to higher acts of confession than ever they were before engaged in, and to a higher provocation of their adversaries, until their former troubles are doubled upon them, which they frequently undergo with great satisfaction. 
Instances of this nature occur in all stories of great persecutions. Others being cowed and discouraged in their profession and perhaps neglected by them, whose duty it was rather to restore them, have by the craft of Satan given place to their declensions and become vile apostates. To prevent these evils arising from the duration of sufferings without a prospect of deliverance, nothing is more prevalent than a constant contemplation on the future reward and glory. So the apostle declares it in Hebrews 11 verse 35. When the mind is filled with the thoughts of the unseen glories of eternity, it has in readiness what to lay in the balance against the longest continuance and duration of sufferings, which in comparison of this at their utmost extent are but for a moment. I've insisted the longer on these things because they are the peculiar objects of the thoughts of them that are indeed spiritually minded. The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded, Chapter 7, John Owen.